paying a CEO off of EBITDA when you yourself are incentivized off of cash distributions from the business. Those are two completely different things. They they reside in a similar place on the spreadsheet, similar you know vertical spot on the spreadsheet. They're radically different and they incentivize radically different behavior. So making sure we call this like drinking from the same straw, we want to make sure that investors, permanent equity and operators are drinking from the exact same straw. And when we can fully align incentives like that, all the behavioral stuff actually comes into line much better than when you're trying to manage a bunch of different incentive stacks. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I am really excited about the conversation I just had with Mark Brooks, who's the COO and co-president at Permanent Equity. I met him through my great friend, Brent Bashore. And Mark is one of my favorite people I've met over the last couple of years. Uh, He is as down to earth and humble as they come and really understands managing people almost as well as anybody I've ever met. For anybody in business, you know that all business is people and how you manage them and work with them and incentivize them and lead them is really going to determine the success of your business. And so today's episode was fantastic. We just talk really all things management and all of the things that Mark has learned along the way to be a great manager of people, um, how he manages the CEOs within the portfolio companies that Permanent Equity owns, how they incentivize folks and how they manage people in a way to get the most and grow those people into uh, the best that they can possibly be. So thanks for continuing to join me and thank you for listening to the show. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Mark, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Chris. I'm so glad that you came down to Fort Worth. A lot of things have captivated me about you. Uh, We've become friends over the last couple of years, but your understanding of people, and in particular, management of people in business, I think is is world class. And so we're going to spend some time talking about it today. Cool. Let's do it. But before we do that, why don't you just tell me a little bit about your career? How did you learn management? How did what is management? Why did you take the, a liking to this? So I think I think a good bit of it came from having bad managers and having really good managers. So quick, quick career arc. I was a consultant out of undergrad for about nine months. It was a totally <laughs> miserable job. I was doing manufacturing consulting, and I had one or two of the worst managers I think anyone could have. So that was that was an education in and of itself. I was traveling. I was based in Pittsburgh. My fiance was based in Washington, D.C., so I was traveling, you know, <laughs> 
five days a week and then driving Friday night from Pittsburgh to DC to spend the weekend with her and then driving back to Pittsburgh on, you know, on Sunday night, getting on a plane Monday morning. It was the lifestyle was awful. So I was out after nine months and I have not job hopped like that since then. I just want to just want to point that out. So uh, anyway, I ended up moving to the DC area to be closer to her and found my way to America Online, to AOL kind of when it was the only way people had to connect to the internet. Okay. So I was on the, I was on the marketing team, but the data side of the, of the marketing team. And at that time, I didn't know this as a, as a younger person in my career, but that was where like all of the great direct response marketing folks in the entire country were <laughs> at that, at that time, like just incredible minds that I, as a very young, dumb person, got to got to leech off of and learn a ton from. So we had, uh, just to give you a sense of scale of AOL at the time, the team that was analyzing marketing programs for AOL was 65 people. Mm -hmm. So it's a giant, giant organization, about 11,000 total employees. Wow. So for about five years, I got really immersed in, you know, what does what does truly corporate, corporate culture, you know, publicly traded corporate culture feel like? And that was that was an education of itself. I had my first management job there, uh, so I was doing a job, and then they said, "Hey, you're good at doing this job. You should manage people doing this job," which we can get into later. <laughs> uh, you know, no training or or anything other than you know, kind of the compulsory, uh, you know, don't harass people type of stuff. <laughs> uh, and then uh, did that for for a few years, and then the writing was on the wall in terms of AOL's sustainability in the broadband world. So I was like, I got to get out of here before the ship sinks and found a job at The Motley Fool and ended up being there for about 15 years. Wow. So I started off building kind of their marketing analytics infrastructure first. That was my first first job there. And Fool ha doesn't have a corporate ladder. They call it the corporate jungle gym. So I got to do lots of different jobs over 15 years. So I started off in business intelligence. And then I got to run ad sales. And then I got to stand up a retention marketing team. And then I got to run product. And then I got to go over to the technology side and eventually got to be CTO for a couple of years and then came back to the general business side. I had had the opportunity to manage enough individual functions that I took on kind of a general manager type of role, specifically over the newsletter business. And then over all of our US-based businesses as kind of like a COO, general manager type person. And 15 years is a long time to be anywhere. So um, so started to transition out. And before I had actually left, got a call from Brent Bishore at Permanent Equity. And he had hired a close compatriot of mine, Tim Hansen, away a year before to be his CFO as he was raising his second fund. The fund was raised at that point. And Brent said to Tim, hey, do you know anybody who knows how to manage businesses and people? And Tim said, I do, but there's no way you're going to get him to move to the middle of Missouri. <laughs> but, you know, Brent pitched me on the job and being able to work with multiple businesses. I had sat on a couple of boards outside of The Fool before. And just from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, like getting to work with different businesses, different industries, that sort of thing. And to be able to do it on an incredibly long time frame, you know, I'd kind of looked at traditional private equity before and, you know, the, the quick flip didn't really resonate with me. There are some people who are great at it and make a ton of money at it. Uh, wasn't really my thing. So uh, getting a chance to go do 
work with lots of different businesses on, you know, from a business time frame standpoint and, you know, infinity was super exciting to me. And, uh, it was a, a clear yes and moved the family to Columbia, Missouri a few months before COVID happened. <laughs> so that was, that was killer timing, but yeah, I've been there about, been there about four years now and it is 100% my dream job, like super, super fun every day, a new challenge and, uh, yeah, having a blast. That's so awesome. What is a good manager and what is a bad manager? <laughs> I think it has to do with how you view people and uh, how you value people. Okay. So a bad manager, to give you, a, I guess, a quick definition, a bad manager is someone who views people as a means to an end and a good manager views people as an end in and of themselves and values the the individual and values the ability to really understand the gifts and abilities that that person has and trying to line them up with unlocking value in the in the business. Yeah. So it's a it is a it's not I have these ideas, I need to figure out how to use these people to get those ideas done. It's I've been given to use, you know, investing terms, I've been given this really awesome portfolio of talents and skills and abilities and fears and excitements and loves and is my job to figure out how to line that up with the aims of the organization in a way that causes flourishing on both sides for the business and for the individuals. Do you think that the culture of businesses create bad managers? So just by nature, a bad business with a bad culture just cranks out bad manager after bad manager? I think there's probably a propensity there. I think there are some great managers hanging out in really bad cultures. Yeah. I think I think management like like most things there are people who are gifted to be truly wonderful managers and for other people it's a, it's a struggle just like just like anything in life. So I think from from that standpoint there's a disconnect between the culture that they operate in and what they're naturally gifted to do. So I think you'll find good managers everywhere. But I think bad cultures will tend to push good managers out because good managers are optimizing for things that bad cultures generally are not. Do you think people are born with traits that make them managers or is there things that can be learned along the way that are maybe against the grain that folks can be still be good managers? Yeah, I think I think like any complicated question. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. It's nature and nurture. And, you know, I think, I think I have some, some things that give me a propensity to be a, a decent manager. I also, you know, you and I were talking about this over lunch. Like I credit my mom a lot with teaching me empathy in a way that I think has helped my people management develop in a way that maybe my natural inclination does, doesn't. So I think it's, I think it can be learned but with anything in our in our jobs like for some people it's going to be an uphill climb and for other people it's going to feel like they're they're running downhill and yeah. i think that that's a combination of nature and nurture all right we're just setting the stage for a a deep conversation you get to brent says come on to columbia missouri and you said i'm coming what do you do there like what is so that we can start there so people can see the rest of the episode through your view of what you're doing. What is your role there? Sure. My role is to manage post-close operations 
for our portfolio companies. So I'll unpack that a little bit. Once we have uh, once we have signed on an investment in a in a business, pretty much everything from that point forward is is under my and my team's purview. So that's everything from working with the CEOs of those businesses in whatever capacity we can be helpful. So that can be a helping them build a long-term three to five strategic plan for their three to five year strategic plan for their business, or like someone that they can call and just yell at somebody because their <laughs> warehouse manager didn't show up for the third day in a row. Right. And everything in between, like we're, we're there to be counselor, confidant, coach, you know, all these, all these sorts of hats that we wear in kind of an operating partner role is kind of the traditional title for that. We also help people find talent. So Kelly on our team is full-time talent location and acquisition for not just for the firm, but for our portfolio companies as well. Johnny is on our team uh, also, and he manages strategic projects for us. So if someone needs help implementing an ERP or writing a book or, you know, whatever, uh, Johnny kind of jumps on those things and, and pours himself into it. So Ryan and I are the, are kind of the two operating partners, Kelly and Johnny augment our abilities with their, with their skills. And then we have a finance team also run by Nikki, our CFO and their job, uh, their financial partners plug in with the financial leaders in those businesses also. So we have kind of a dual hook in structure where Ryan and I are working with the CEOs, the leadership of the, of the business and Nikki and her team are plugging in with the controller or CFO or director of finance, whoever the senior most financial person is and helping them analyze data, you know, helping them figure out how to close the books faster, you know, all those, all those sorts of great things on the finance and accounting side. And then we at, at the firm back channeling has a bad connotation, but we're back channeling with each other and saying, Hey, on the financial side, what are you seeing as areas of opportunity? What can we be optimizing? And we're sharing with them. This is what we're seeing on the operational side. This is what we think might be coming down the pike. Help us think through how we're going to finance you know, this equipment purchase, or, you know, what do you think about this compensation scheme that we're, that we're talking through? So there's a lot of collaboration between operations and finance on that team to kind of help unlock value in the business. Okay. I asked you what you do do. What are you not there to do for people? We are not there to run the business. Okay. Uh, so what, and this is the ultimate line that nobody fully knows where it's drawn. Yeah. Brent and I have talked, anybody that owns businesses, where's the line? So, man, it's, it is, it is the tough question. It is, it is the ultimate question. I think what we, what our preference is for the CEO of that business to lead and to lead from a strategic standpoint, to lead from a tactical standpoint. And our job is to remove blockers and help augment their capabilities in ways that help them get after what they wanted to do in the first place faster. There are times when we might disagree on strategy or tactics. And those are the, those are the cases where we become more of a, of a coach there. It is very, very rare for us. I'm grateful to say where we have to put the brakes on something or push someone really hard to do something that they don't want to do. You know, we're blessed in that regard to be fairly well aligned with the folks who are operating the businesses. So we we have the really fun job of collecting their dreams and desires and thinking through, okay, how do we do this faster? How do we do it cheaper? How do we do it better? 
and really being kind of a second fiddle to them in a way. And uh, even though we do have majority ownership in in all of our investments, we prefer to be that fast follower role where we put really good people in leadership and we're following them and trying to help them go faster. Yeah. Is there anything else you don't do? Can you help me help me understand the question? Better? Well, I think sometimes when I think it goes and, and you might have answered it. I mean, it's the line. But I think when folks think from y'all's perspective, we're going to buy a business and we are going to they're going to run it, but we're going to be there for support. And then, you know, maybe a business closes and they start calling you for maybe more things. And you're like, whoa, got it. maybe we don't. This isn't where we yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So we we don't have right now and I and at least right now we don't aspire to build a central services model that makes those businesses hopelessly dependent on the firm. Right. Like that's that's just not our desire and we're not really incentivized to to do that. So we will build out functions like Kelly doing hiring and Johnny doing strategic projects where we feel like an intimate knowledge of the business is actually going to make us a better service provider for those sorts of things. But those aren't those aren't functions that the business, should we ever part ways for whatever reason, is going to have trouble replacing. Right. So what we don't want to do is become a necessary appendage to the business. We're happy to play the role of a of a third party service that they could outsource elsewhere, but we don't want to create unhealthy dependence on us for day to day operational needs. Yeah. And then as far as the cadence at which you're managing these external businesses, yeah. and you've kind of tweeted about this, I don't believe y'all are setting up formal boards. I don't even believe y'all are doing these quarterly meetings. Right. You tend to say it's a day-by-day, week-by-week thing. How do y'all manage that's maybe different than how other PE manages? Yeah. So we don't, we don't do boards. You know, Ryan and I kind of refer to ourselves as like the board in the box for the uh, for the business, we, you know, one person board in a in a sense. We don't do quarterly board meetings, and part of that is my my natural allergy to those, having had to do them. Uh, <laughs> I just know, and they're not necessarily bad, but it's so easy for them to become a massive time suck, especially for the people in the business whose time is the most valuable. So you've got your CEO, your COO, your head, you know, chief marketing officer, whatever spending weeks leading up to this quarterly event, making sure that the deck is showing the company in the best light, that they're all buttoned up, that they know, you know, they know what they're doing, that they're good at their jobs. And we want that to be more of a conversation and a more vulnerable conversation about what is it that you need? What is it that you're lacking? You know, what can we help find for you in terms of in terms of resources? So what that looks like is anywhere from a 15 to 60 minute conversation either once a week or once every two weeks with each of our CEOs. So it's a it's a little bit more time intensive when you add up all the time together, but we are much more intimately aware of what of what's going on at the business. We have a sense of the culture of the business. We get to know the employees inside the business beyond the management suite because we're interacting with them on on those calls and working on projects and that sort of thing. So when it does come to larger strategic conversations, which we tend to do either annually or twice a year in kind of a, what are we doing over the next year? And then six month, you know, break. Okay. How are we, how are we tracking against those things that we said we were going to do? Do we need to reset for the next six months? 
when we come to those conversations, we're not having to, to go through this big reminder and, you know, wind up on, okay, remind me of who does that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And who owns that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are the numbers? Like? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just, you're immersed in it kind of like a, like an assistant to the CEO, like a chief of staff kind of yep. as you're, as you're talking to them each week. So you're, you know who the people are, you know what the, the puzzle pieces look like when you come to the table to have a larger strategic discussion, as opposed to each quarter trying to catch up on three whole months of activity and changes and then reset your mind to a more strategic conversation. So we prefer the more regular cadence, I think. And is there an agenda that you go through on each call or is it different or can do, do they know what to expect on each call? They eventually do. Yeah. yeah. Er, earlier on, it's more difficult. And I think another thing that, that we do that's, that's pretty odd and, and different is as part of our doing all of our due diligence in-house. So we don't, uh, we don't do third-party diligence. And the way that we assign diligence inside the firm is whoever's going to be responsible for that function moving forward after close is the person who's in charge of diligence again. So Taylor, who owns legal, is doing all the legal, uh, you know, and corporate structure diligence because that's his responsibility after close. I'm looking at org chart, compensation plans, you know, strategic projects. You know, Nikki and her team are breaking down the financials, doing bank reconciliations because that's what they own going forward. So we actually start having those weekly or biweekly conversations as soon in diligence as everyone is comfortable doing. So ideally, you know, a lot of times now, by the time we get to close, I've been having a weekly conversation with the CEO for two or three months, which is which makes that day zero seem just like the day before it in the way that we like, you know, we don't want people to feel change. We want it to feel like a natural progression. So we, you know, pretty early on, sometimes we'll have a set of questions that we'll ask people, but it's, it's super basic stuff. And it's like, what went well this week? What didn't go well this week? What are you excited about? What are you nervous about? And how can we help? And I, I think as long as we cover the, those five questions, we've got a pretty good sense of how things are, how things are going. Eventually though, we don't have to ask any of those questions because once once the operators understand our desired role in the business, they come with, okay, I want to talk about this and I want to let you know about this and I could really use some help with this. So they, yep. I mean, that's, that's the ideal is when we get on the phone and they're driving the agenda, asking us to be helpful to them, to be thought partners to them or like actual tactical partners to them is I really need to find you know, an outsourced HR resource who understands California labor law. Got it. Like we can oh. go, you know, we can, we can go do that. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how we, that's how we like to plug in. So we'll start with the basic battery of questions, but eventually it becomes the CEO or the COO. Sometimes it's a pair of people on the call really driving that agenda. And that's, that's our strong preference. Are there ever times where you know, you said you for two to three months leading up to acquisition, you're already on calls with these people mm -hmm. where the price is right. The business looks awesome. Everything seems right. But there's something you're picking up on through conversations. It's like maybe we just it, are there cues of what might lead to doing a bad deal, even when everything looks good on paper yeah. from a management perspective. I I think we're fortunate that we haven't run into one of those yeah. be before. I think the thing that would that would come out is, you know, we have this 
this no assholes policy that applies to us, that. us at the firm and at the at the portfolio companies. And that's something, you know, that we when we go into diligence, we're talking about that almost as much as we're talking about the the fundamentals of the of the business, the market dynamics, the financials. We're having really in-depth conversations about, hey, when we we're talking about X, Y, and Z, did you notice how flustered the CEO got about about this? And we have we have passed on deals that penciled very well because it was not a it was not a dynamic that we were interested in in entering. And for those that are, you know, thinking, gosh, you're going to be a majority owner of the business, like why don't you just scrub them out? A bunch of our deals are majority recaps. So we're actually entering the cap table with an owner of the business and a lot of times with the founder of the business. And we need to be in partnership with them for a very long time under our model. So this isn't someone that we can just scrub out and not have immense impact on the culture and structure of the business, especially in the early days. So we need to be diligencing that relation, that relational aspect just as hard as we're diligencing the fundamentals of the business. Do any of the businesses that you buy already have a board in place or most of them are boardless? We have not, we haven't bought one with a board before. And they, they tend to be small enough that some of them will have kind of informal advisory boards, you know, their accountant or their personal personal wealth advisor, that sort of thing. But they're they're informal. They're not meeting regularly. They're just kind of, you know, cadre of people that the CEO calls. You know, she needs to call her wealth advisor to talk about this or she needs to call her, you know, tax yeah. accountant about this, but not a formal board as such. Okay. We talked about this at lunch. I would fall into the category of maybe being less employable than others. I would imagine even Johnny laughed. I heard that. We need to give him a mic. He's our laugh, he's our laugh track for this one. <laughs> but I would imagine there's other folks like me and they tend to run businesses. And you come to me and and we have a great call for three months and the price is right. And you tell me, you know, we're, we're recapping the business. We are going to be the new owner of the business. And I say, yeah, that's great. And we're going to have check-in calls. Yeah, that's great. And then the money crosses the goal line a week into it, and my life is starting to change a little bit because now I actually, I'm not saying that this is y'all, it's just in theory, I am now going to be held maybe a little more accountable than I was the day before. Mm -hmm. What are things that you do to folks like me to not only, it's it's one thing to tell me everything I need to know up front, but we know how life works. Mm -hmm. Even after the money's crossed the goal line and a few weeks go down the road, I'm still showing up to the office every day like I did before the money crossed the goal line. Yeah, And money's fun for the first couple of days, but then you kind of, do CEOs sometimes forget that they got the money? <laughs> uh, May I start with that question? <laughs> sometimes we have conversations that makes it feel that way. <laughs> yeah. So my question would be, how could someone like me or be prepared to be managed. Like, how do you handle that to where there is that transition where even though you said it, said it, said it, said it, said it, it still works out long-term. Yeah. And I think someone, someone asked a similar question on Twitter, which yeah. is how do you keep people motivated after yeah. they've just gotten this, you know, once in a lifetime paycheck. And I think it has to do a lot with the types of businesses that we're interested in partnering with in that. And we can, we can get into this later too. I don't think we've bought a business from someone who thought about their business as an investment. We have got to right? talk about this. So they, 
they started their business because they saw a hole in the market that they were passionate to go after filling or they experienced some frustration at you know at another firm and went out to you know compete with them or there's a there's a passion around the subject matter that drove someone to start their their business and so they view they view their business more as a passion project or a job or a bank account than an, than an investment so the the payoff for them and partnering with us actually comes with some freedom that they probably haven't had in a long time because when they started this little business with them and a partner or maybe two or three other people things were very simple and they could focus on the thing that they really wanted to focus on and this goes to like permanent equity not having a thesis like an industry thesis our thesis is businesses that are run by passionate people that know how to make money are going to continue doing that yep. so we love finding these extremely passionate people. And at the beginning, the business was simple. They could focus on the subject matter. They could focus on, you know, the engineering problem they were trying to solve, or they could focus on super serving their customers, or they could focus on being a leader in the industry, you know, thought leader in the industry around how they're doing training or something like that. And then the business has grown and it's gotten larger and they have 20 employees and 30 employees and 50 employees. And now they've got like a bunch of stuff that they have to do as CEO of the business. That's not why they started the business. Yeah. They're having to think about stuff like finance, which most of the listeners to your pod, that's the thing that they're going to focus on when they look at a business like this. For most of the folks that we partner with, that's an, it's an annoyance. Like they don't, they don't want to think about finance. They don't want to think about accounting. They don't really want to think about HR. They don't want to think about, they definitely don't want to think about legal issues. So all this stuff has crept in and it is impinging on the joy that they had at the very beginning, the reason that they started the business. So the answer to the question of how do you keep people motivated when you go through this transition and they've just gotten a paycheck, I think the answer is maybe oversimplified, but they get to go back to doing the stuff, the reason that they started the business mm. in the first place. And that's super freeing for them. And it's like, hey, I don't want you to deal with this anymore. We're gonna hire this person onto your leadership team that's really gonna handle finance and accounting for you so you don't have to think about it anymore. And we're gonna hire this you know, HR lead or bring in a third party to help you manage payroll and insurance and all these sorts of things. And uh, you have Taylor that you can call on legal issues now. So those aren't, you know, those aren't burdening you. So we create this infrastructure around them that actually takes all this stuff that feels burdensome and has really hampered their ability to enjoy why they started the business in the first place. And so I, I think we actually have founders and owners that are more excited about their business post-close, even though they have a ton of money in the bank now because it's, they get to go back to their first love, like the reason that they started the business in the first place and they're re-energized and excited to focus about those things because we're able to bring the resources to handle the stuff that they're not as excited about. What advantages do you have as permanent equity with a long horizon? And maybe we can talk about how y'all incentivize CEOs or, mm -hmm. or manage that process that like a traditional five to seven year private equity or three to five years buy it, fix it, flip it. How do y'all incentivize differently than maybe traditional private equity to 
allow people to keep having fun and still stay motivated. Right. I think I th- I think it's because that longer term horizon is most is more aligned with the traditional founder owner type person. Like again, there when we're thinking about owning a business for 30 years, that is much more aligned with how that founder or owner has been thinking about their business, right? Most folks who own a small to medium-sized business who are, you know, again, like they're passionate about solving this problem in the market, what they're not thinking about is how do I maximize my multiples so I can flip this thing (laughs) to private equity, you know, five years from now? Like, that's just, that's not the mentality. And again, going back to it, like they aren't thinking about their business as an investment. They're thinking about it as a way to get paid and paid a lot. It's fine to be motivated by money, but to do something that they really enjoy and that they're, and that they're passionate about, they're not thinking about how do I, how do I present this thing in the best possible light to drive the highest possible multiple so I can sell it and sell it multiple times. So because we're doing a lot of majority recaps, they're, you know, they're having to make a choice between I'm going to take on a partner for three or four years while we're building and then reset whoever my partner is when we flip the business, as opposed to saying, you know, we we kind of talk about ourselves and Emily on our team does a great job of this, talking about uh, the next generation of, of capital. So for family-owned businesses that don't have a next step, don't have an, an heir or someone in the business who's ready to come in and, and take over, we can be that next generation of, of capital. And I think that resonates with, with a lot of folks. To your question about incentivizing you know we have we have some CEOs in our portfolio who are who were the founders or the owners before we did the the recap we have some CEOs where we've had to bring in talent so like for example the business that we bought from a 95 year old woman in California we needed new CEO talent for, <laughs> for that she didn't roll by the way yeah <laughs> she she was out so that's you know there so we've had a couple of situations where we've needed to bring in new talent we want those folks to be incentivized in a similar way to a founder so we're strongly encouraging a co-invest from them and because we want them to be incentivized like like an owner so just as a, a quick flyover for folks who aren't familiar with our model so we're not charging our investors a management fee the only way permanent equity gets paid is when distributions are made from the from the business okay so we in the ideal scenario our leadership gets paid the exact same way we do only they get a salary don't right so the operator of the business is making a salary they are typically making some kind of a a, either combination of these two things or, or both of them individually depending on the situation a bonus that's based on distributed cash and then an equity portion that they have that they have funded where they are also receiving distributions and i'll take like a quick rabbit trail and say one of the things that we've had to learn the hard way on that front is it's it's really important that it is the exact same line on the spreadsheet that you're incentivizing people off of and not some modulation on it so as an example paying a ceo off of ebitda when you yourself are incentivized off of cash distributions from the business, those are 
two completely different things. They they reside in a similar place on the spreadsheet, similar you know vertical spot on the spreadsheet. They're radically different, and they incentivize radically different behavior. So making sure we call this like drinking from the same straw. We want to make sure that investors, permanent equity, and operators are drinking from the exact same straw. And when we can fully align incentives like that, all the behavioral stuff actually comes into line much better than when you're trying to manage a bunch of different incentive stacks. Okay. So in a five to seven, three to, I keep shortening the timeline because some of these companies are like hot potatoes. It is (laughs) three years. Let's say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm rolling my, I'm rolling some equity in, I'm getting paid a salary. You're going to give me a bonus. And we're even drinking from the same straw, even though the time horizon is less. I at least know I'm getting paid again in three years, call it a big thing if, or a big payout, if that works when you're holding a business. And that is an if that is an if by the way, for sure. So you, yeah, but that's at least what I believe. Yeah. I believe every there's nobody that ever sold their there's I've never seen a graph where it goes down. They all go up into the well, right because those graphs don't get shared. Correct. There's some, survivor, <laughs> there's some survivorship bias on those on those graphs. But I think but I, it is an sorry it is an important point. Like I don't I don't think people who are out there looking to work for traditional private equity do a good job of risk adjusting that for three sure. to five year payout. So I'll just I'll say that. But if you're buying my business now, now we're going back into role play. I still believe I'm getting another big home run in five years. But if I sell to y'all and you're going to hold on to this business forever, I can't envision that next sale, that big payout. So maybe my question is, like, how do you incentivize against that? So for it's probably different for an operator that we're bringing in outside than mm-hmm. it is for than it is for an owner. If the founder stayed right, on, right? If the founder stays on, so if the founder stays on, they're they're rolling equity, correct? And just uh, I don't I don't know this is written in any of our documents anywhere, but we're we are not going to buy a business where a founder is staying on and they're not rolling equity for sure. That's a super bad <laughs> signal for, for us. So no, just I to swear be, it's so going to be good, yeah. but so I'm not going to roll forward. Just to be, just to be clear. We want them either exiting or staying on with a significant role because okay. because of what that what that says to us. And so there's st- there's still equity owners in in the business, and I am probably not at liberty to like go into the details. Yeah. But for each for each person talking through, it's it's a very personal conversation that we have with the founder on how long are you looking to stay yeah. with the business, and some of them say I'm going to die in the chair. Some of them say, I probably have another five to seven years. Any less than that, we we will, you know, structure things differently. Yeah. But we will talk to them about what their eventual, you know, outcome is uh, wants to be. And we will set structure in the purchase agreement around what, you know, what the future holds for them. Cool. Yeah. And to the extent you can share, and if and the answer is we can't share, if that founder does after seven years say, I'm done. And they've done their job and everything's been a home run. Do is there a mechanism that they get bought out at that point, or could do they get to roll forever? I would say it depends. Depends. It depends business to business. Yeah. yeah we okay. keep our own flexibility on that. All right. We're gonna spend the next half of this conversation like really drilling into like management. Gosh, stuff. are we halfway done already? Oh, I don't even know if we're halfway okay. done. We're 45 minutes in. Okay. We we I think okay. we could go another hour and 15. We'll see. Okay. When you are about to manage someone. You have a document and it's called working with Mark. Yes. Why is that important? <laughs> and so, why should managers want to have something similar? Yeah. So it's t- 
to be to be clear, it's something that I've adopted pretty recently. Okay. Um, and so so Nikki, our CFO, who came came on in January, was kind of the first person to consume okay. to consume that. So, but what I I had seen this this has been modeled for me. You know, I get to I mentioned I get to be on the tech side at the Fool for a while. They're really great managers in the software space that have been doing this for a long time. And the the reason that I think it's important is I think setting expectations is is hugely hugely important. I think satisfaction in anything and especially in a job is reality divided by expectations. And if so if you're not setting the denominator in that equation up front, people are free to make it whatever they will. So they will get frustrated with you about things and if they're willing to hold on for a year, two years, three years, they will understand what your management operating system looks like eventually. But what I, I think the beauty of that document is it accelerates two or three years worth of, you know, boots on the ground learning who your manager actually is and condenses it into like a two to three page document. And by the time you're done reading it, you're like, okay, okay, got it. Like if I want time with this person, I need to schedule it on their calendar. Or, you know, if you're a different type of personality, I just need to like shoot them a Slack message and ask them if they've got, if they've got time. So establishing the, you know, your operating system up front, I think can be, can be very helpful in terms of setting those expectations up front so that people aren't constantly violent. I mean, it helps the manager too, right? right. Like, why do they keep, why do they keep slacking me like impromptu and asking me for a walk? Like I am, you know, 10 pages deep. <laughs> on this, uh, you know, on this PA and I need to get through it. You know, there's, so I, I think th there are, there's a lot of friction in any, in any relationship, but in management relationships, you're, you tend to be spending more time with those people than you spend with your spouse. Yep. So, and we don't do a very good job of kind of getting to know each other. You just kind of fall into the, into the role and it's expected on either side that you're going to figure out who the other person is. And I think a manager does their teammate a, a huge service when they say, this is, you know, this is who, these are the hours that I, that I tend to keep. So if you don't hear from me in this hour, it's because I block it for, you know, dinner with my family and I'll be back online later to answer emails and texts and stuff. So I think just establishing those not rules of the road, they're not rules, but like preferences. And, uh, you know, this is how I like to, I like to operate prevents a lot of that or that first year of friction when you're trying to figure out what each other's cadence is. So this is your first opportunity for the people you're working with to show how important communicating is, even at the most this you're communicating about yourself. Yeah. We tend to do that in families. We don't actually do it so formally. You just live with them so long. You figure out over time, like this is going to make Chris cranky. This is what makes Chris happy. Chris, you know, right. And even, and it's funny, like, even if you, even if you start to know those things, like this makes Chris cranky, this makes Chris cranky, it takes, you know, sometimes a decade or more of being in one of those relationships to be able to connect those two things that make you cranky. Oh, wait, this makes him cranky. And this makes him cranky because of this same thing, right? Yep. It takes so long to triangulate those fundamental things. So I think if you're if you're willing to be vulnerable as a manager and share your fundamental beliefs with a, you know, with a teammate early on, it helps them start to make those connections earlier and you get to know each other 
faster and start working together better. I'm 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 looking at my notes and I shouldn't be, but I'm, and we talked about it at lunch. You say management is not a. It's not like a. <laughs> it's not a trade. It's not a trade. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So a a, a friend of mine that that I worked with at the at the fool came up with this, and I I think it's I think it's brilliant. And she said, you know, every other job in the world has a certain amount of input and then at, at least a semi-predictable output from that from that input. And so in our business, we talk about the trades and we tend to think of the folks who are, you know, excellent at plumbing, welding, electrical, all these sorts of jobs. I, I think the argument is trades are much, much broader than that in terms of I go to work and I do this and this is the result of it. So if you're using that as a definition, a dentist is a trade because you go and you do work and at the end of the day, there's work that you can look at that got done. And uh, doctors and even even investors to some degree are, are a trade because there's a, there's a measurable output that comes. Sometimes it's not in the same day, but... And so using that definition... And I'm I'm happy to be uh, challenged on this. I haven't been able to come up with one myself yet. It's the only job that's not a trade in that sense, where you put in defined inputs and you get defined outputs. Especially if you're thinking of management as driving towards the development, not just of the organization, but of the people inside of it, because people are so messy and unpredictable, myself uh, included, in that that there isn't a like the same quid pro quo that a that another trade would would have, right? So I think it's I think it's interesting to think about management not as a as a trade because again, we talked about setting expectations. It helps you set expectations as a manager. And I think I think the move from being an individual contributor to a manager is is an extremely difficult change to make as well because the the economics that you've been taught as an individual contributor are completely flipped on their head when you become a manager. So from, I mean, from day one of being born, you are given feedback on your individual performance. And it's your individual performance throughout school, and it's your individual performance in college if you go to college. It's your individual performance in your, in your first few jobs when you enter the workforce. And then you become a manager and it has nothing to do with your individual performance anymore unless you are one of those people who does all the work for your team behind the scenes to make everybody look good. Yep. So so moving into people management then is this kind of radical shift of your internal economics on how you measure your own performance and how you measure your worth as an employee because it's been your own individual output that you control. You've been, you have, uh, if we if we can agree for a minute that management is the only non-trade out there, you've been working in a trade and now you're in the only non-trade. And we assume as executives and managers that we can, you know, the person who is really good at doing this trade should therefore be the person who's really good at managing people in that trade. And I think that is, hugely problematic. And not only do we assume that, but we also assume they don't need any training to do it. So I think people managers in general are the most undertrained people out there in terms of what is expected of them 
how to drive, you know, good results from a team while not alienating them and, you know, developing them to become better and better at what they do. So there's the, your, your question was, you know, trade versus non-trade. I think it's an important distinction because we get so conditioned to have measurable output from, from what we do from a day's worth of work and you move into a management, a, you know, people management position and your initial inclination when you're doing people management well is to say, I got nothing done today. And I would, I would argue that as you, as you go along and you get more and more comfortable with your job being people management, that that should actually be a pretty good indicator of whether you're doing a good job of delegating, whether you're developing your team. If you can step into your old shoes in your old trade and you're leaving your desk saying, I didn't get anything done today, it might mean that you're actually doing a pretty good job as a manager. (laughs) (laughs) So what looked like work doesn't necessarily look like work anymore because there is not that I I had this input and I had this output every day that we that as humans were conditioning needing to know you got the thumbs up. Right. Yep. Why do you, is, and it's probably more common in small and medium-sized businesses. Large companies have training and they have universities and all these things to go through. But even as we sit here today and we say that, it's so obvious that it seems so obvious that you would need to be trained to do this. But why do you think we're still in 2023? And just like you were in your career, the star of sales immediately is the one selected to go become the manager of sales. I th- I think because we don't, maybe it's because this is a theory, maybe it's because not enough of us have had a truly great manager. Yeah. So we don't, we don't know what good management looks like to a degree that we know to value it enough to mm. invest in, invest the time and resources to make people truly great managers. You know, I, I was fortunate enough at AOL. I had, uh, I talked to you about corporate structure. Mm-hmm. I had a manager and his manager and his manager and all three of them were incredible and part of that was they man they leaned on me hard like when i made a mistake in a in a deck that was you know going up the going up the chain or something i heard about it and you know but at the same time they would stay late with me to help me learn how to learn how to fix it so okay. there's like being in the trenches with a really good manager feels fundamentally different. And I think the the vast majority of people managers out there aren't very good at it because they haven't had the training. The ones that are good at it have just been doing it for so darn long that they've picked up what feels good and what doesn't. And there are some people who just aren't naturally inclined to be good people managers and they could do it for 30 years and still be crap. So yeah. there's, I, I think we we haven't, enough of us haven't experienced what a transformative deal it is to have a truly great manager to be able to value it and put resources against it. Is it fair to say you believe in people don't leave companies, they leave managers? I do. I believe they leave both. Yeah. But again, if we have a if we have a 50% divorce rate for people that you spend less than half the time with the people that you work with. Yeah. Right? Like it it makes I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You you kind of touched on it. But just explain to me, this I think has to do with going deep or going wide. What's the difference between a manager and a principal? Yeah, I think this is super important. And I think it 
is very empowering to organizations that get this right. And I'll use, I'll use software development as an example, just because it's one that I have a decent amount of experience with. You use the salesperson example first, your best salesperson gets put in charge of sales, sales <laughs> take a plunge as yeah. a result. The, the same thing can happen in software development where your most productive software developer, you, you promote them to manager and you know, the, the quality of your code base falls off. People are less motivated. That's that sort of thing. And I think there's a, there's a difference between mentorship and management that is, that is important in this, because I, I think a principal is someone who is extremely good at what they do and hasn't shown an inclination towards being good at managing people. So what you want them to do is go as deep as possible in their subject matter as they possibly can. And part of their job is to educate the rest of the team on that functional expertise. But I would argue that people management is way, way more than functional expertise. So your, your principals or your subject matter experts should be your mentors, people who are going extremely deep on one particular subject. And then your people managers are the ones that are great at building relationship, identifying when someone is you know, roadblocked, identifying when someone needs to build a new skill or they're having you know, trouble relating to someone else in the, in the organization. There's, there's a tremendous amount of complexity to people beyond their depth of knowledge in one particular subject matter. So the organizations that can identify the difference between a principal slash mentor and an actual manager are the ones that I think win long-term. And so what that means is, and I think the thing, the other reason that we don't really prioritize this is what I, what I learned, and maybe this has been formative for me too, is I've had to run several organizations where I was by far the dumbest person subject matter wise in the entire group. So I, I was managing a team at AOL who was involved in collections. I knew nothing about collections. And these folks had been doing collections at, at AOL and other organizations before literally for 30 years. And, you know, here comes this, you know, 26 year old, you know, kid <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to manage you guys. And so I, but I think what it, what it taught me was I was, I was never going to be better than them at collections. But what I, what I could do was be valuable to them in terms of how they communicate with the rest of the organization. It was not a very highly thought of group because they're very focused on collections that takes a certain type of personality, but we could cast that group's value to the organization in a different light with a different kind of communication and a different kind of positioning, especially when it came to reinvestments in that team. No one wants to reinvest in a team if all they've talked to is a, is a bill collector, but when you can position strategic projects in a way to attract funding, that's a, that's a totally different, a totally different thing. So the, and I think that's also been helpful at, at permanent equity as well, because we are buying businesses in, you know, amusement park ride manufacturing and, you know, executive search for love and airplane parts repair. And like, I, I don't know anything about any of those things, yep. especially relative to the people that have been in those businesses, 20, 30, 40 years. And if I aspire to be as good, you know, even as good as them or even half as good as them, that is a massive waste of my time. Yep. 
So we have to get over the organizations that can get over the uncomfortability of having a person leading a team who is not the subject matter expertise in that team, but knows how to do a great job of managing projects, getting people to work together, helping people unlock their gifts and understand how they align with what the business is trying to accomplish. That's where we start to see the value of, of good management. Management doesn't mean deep subject matter expertise. That's mentorship yep. and management is all the other stuff. In the world today, there's lots of personality tests. There's lots of tests you can take. And you've said something along these lines. That's only part of the equation. But there's a lot of people today that have maybe used it as a crutch to say that is the equation. Yeah. We got what we got. Their their profile said this. Yeah. And you've taken a step further and said not so much. What do you mean by that? I think I haven't run across one of those that wasn't helpful. Yeah. Enneagram, very helpful. Five Voices, very helpful. Strengths Finder, very helpful. MBTI, you know, DISC. I've done all of those and they're all a helpful lens on on somebody but if you if you've done enough of those you start to realize what one surfaces that the other doesn't and i think our our tendency our our brains are wired for shortcuts right so we love the shortcut of knowing someone's myers briggs personality because we identify like oh I know what feelers are like, and then we presume 13 things that have nothing to do with the feeler aspect of Myers-Briggs or, you know, oh, I know what a D is in DISC, and we presume, you know, 11 things about them that doesn't necessarily align with a D. We just, we have a, uh, so the reason I push back on it a little bit is because I know that our, our brains want shortcuts to understand things. And if we have one little piece of information on who somebody is, we extrapolate all this other stuff that's not necessarily accurate. And so I know people who have been branded early on in their career as an introvert or, you know, an S in the in the disc or, you know, this in the in the Colby, you know, high information seeker in the Colby. And it has been it's been crippling to their career because people have taken that one piece of knowledge. And they know, okay, oh, the last person that we had in that role had that attribute also, and they were unsuccessful. So therefore, this person's not going to be, yep. even though that's a you know tenuous at best correlation. So I, I, that's why I, I, I encourage people to take them because I think they are a helpful diagnostic. I encourage them to share them because I think they're a helpful diagnostic. But I encourage people also to build a portfolio of them so that you understand like, how incredibly complex people are. And despite each, each of those insistence that they're able to explain people's behavior from, you know, a few letters, we, I continuously see people defying this particular one and this particular one and this particular one and this particular one. And when you put together the eight, nine, 10 most common ones as a thing, you're back to square one of we are incredibly complex <laughs> individuals. <laughs> And, you know, and that's why people management is hard. And that's why I think we should value it. Like if the disc did a perfect job of predicting people's behavior or strengths finder or Enneagram or whatever, then people management is less important because we can be very formulaic with people and say, oh, well, a D is going to do this in this situation. And so I just need to give them this feedback when in fact, it's this huge, it takes a massive portfolio of these things to even start to understand people. Now, I think there are there are certain 
types of assessments that are more helpful in certain cultures than than others. So I I think it's fine for organizations to to really take a deeper look at you know one two or three of those. I'm not saying everybody needs to do eight or ten, but I, I'm just saying as you do that, accept that you have that it is one lens that you're using to look at someone, and even behind that diagnostic that they answered 120 questions to get to is an incredibly deeply complex human being who will defy one of those letters or numbers in uh, in individual circumstances. And part of the joy and challenge of people management is to get to understand that person behind, you know, the person behind the numbers and letters. Yep. So it's basically just treating people like people to some degree. Uh, yeah, but that's a much less interesting thing to say on a yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few things that you said. We we're gonna we're gonna get to incentives in a second, but I wanted to describe a situation that I think happens in businesses often. One, there's a misnomer that management is a promotion. Yep. But you see this play out sometimes, and I'll describe it a few different ways. But one, maybe you have two folks, they started the business at the same time, they're like equally as good, but one is really on a management path. They can be a manager. Mm-hmm. But there's this conflict of, well, this person can't manage this person. They've been equals. The alternative would be, well, let's just bring in a manager from the outside. And then that could set the thing off of, well, what about us? We were here first. So maybe start with that first one, which I think you see more often than not. How, if you were a manager, or how do you talk to people where you have two quote unquote equals in the business, but it's clear that one will eventually be managing the other? Mm -hmm. And leave comp out. You might have the person that's being managed making more than the person managing, but the perceived situation is often that somebody lost and somebody won in that scenario. How do you handle yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that I think the problem is the. I mean, the word manager has so. I mean, you're asking the question because that word has so much baggage. Yeah, it does behind it. And what if, uh, what if instead of uh, just thinking off the cuff here, what if instead of managers, we called them optimizers? Okay. So like, instead of having a manager, you're going to have an optimizer. So you, we got into this a little bit over lunch. You're a, you're a more visionary type. Don't think that you're necessarily pre-wired for people management. Yep. And I said to you in it, Instead of you are going to be managed by this person, I'm bringing in an you know an optimizer, or a coach, or or you know whatever whatever so you call true. it. I think that it takes on a different feel, and it doesn't feel burdensome because I think what what we hear when we say you're going to be managed by this person is you're going to be controlled by this person. This person is going to make decisions for you this person is going to steer you, you know, in, in this direction, that direction. And most of us push back against, against that sort of a thing. But if we positioned it as we're putting this person here to optimize your skills and to optimize them on behalf of the business, maybe that's a better way to, a better way to think about it. So I had, I had a really interesting management relationship at the fool where we were managing a business unit together and I reported to him and then everybody reported to me. And the reason, the reason behind that I could, I mean, in a traditional structure, 
I could very easily say, now, wait a minute, like I'm the one doing all the management. Like, why do I have to report to him? And the reason that it made sense is he was, he was a visionary type and not necessarily geared towards managing people, managing organizations, project management, that, that sort of a thing. But he was incredibly helpful to me because he was constantly pulling my vision up out of the, out of the weeds and saying, Hey, don't forget about the forest. Don't forget about the forest. Don't forget about the forest. And at the same time, he didn't let that, that structure on paper dictate what I could and could not have a conversation with him about. So I was able to have conversations with him of, Hey, these are great ideas, but we need to sequence them. You know, so we, we had this, you know, very healthy back and forth of me using my strengths to make him better, him using his strengths to make me better. And we, we very regularly said to each other, like, I don't care how this shows up on the org chart, as long as we get to work together yeah. and finding those, finding those pairings is incredibly powerful in, in business. And I, I love this concept of managing in pairs. Yeah. So I, there is, there's a strength to having someone beside you who has very different gifts and, and abilities, their fears are completely different from yours and what they get excitement excited about is completely different from you. And if you can, if you can build a, a relationship with that person where you're co-managing a team together, that is a huge unlock because you've got someone who is covering off on all of your weaknesses, ideally bringing completely different strengths to the table where you're afraid to charge in, they're going to charge in where they're holding back. You're going to charge in. We just, we work together as pairs really well. So if you can find those kind of one, two punches in management where people aren't going to think about management as control, but management as optimization. So, you know, in that, in that situation, Jeremy and I were, we were co-optimizing each other and the team bringing our gifts when, when they were important, you know, making sure that one of us is covering off on the other's weaknesses when, when that was important. So I think that's, uh, you know, another part of the challenge where we push back on investing in management is we feel like the person needs to be, uh, the person with the most knowledge of the subject matter needs to be in control because they're the ones making the decisions. And that's, also not necessarily the case. They're the person who's optimizing the knowledge of the team to produce the best decision. They don't yeah. have to be the one with the idea. It's their job to go find it and make sure that, that they've created a culture where that idea is bubbling up freely and you know with anticipation and excitement. So I think going back three or four conversations ago, I think that's another reason we, we push back on it is because we do associate management with control. And I don't think management is control. Management is about optimization. That was the perfect answer. And for the millions of small businesses that listen to this, I think in a few years on LinkedIn, we're going to start seeing new <laughs> titles come out. Optimizers. Great. I love it. No, that was an incredible, that was, that was, you, you nailed that. When you hear the word, well, I think there's two things that could go on, two bad things. You could have this, what's becoming more popular, at least maybe it's been going on for longer. I just hear it more. We're a flat organization. Mm -hmm. The contrary to that is over management. You, you got managers on top of managers on top of managers I'm trying to figure out how to pose the question. Like, how do you know you're at balance? How do you know you're not being overmanaged? And mm -hmm. how do you know what, what, 
how do you know you're too flat? Mm-hmm. I think if you're if you're too flat, then you're the folks at the top of the organization don't feel like they're using their gifts to the to the max. They're having to do a lot of things that they're not gifted doing at doing. They're not excited about doing. Mm. Uh, so if you're if you're too flat, you're having to deal with a bunch of different subjects that you're not necessarily the best at or or excited about. And I think if you're too deep or, you know, I guess if that's the opposite of flat. If you're too deep, then <laughs> information can't go from bottom to top and in, in an efficient way. And I think as as leaders, we have to be constantly diagnosing this through, you know, skip level meetings. So make sure that you're not just talking to the people that report to you. Make sure that you're talking to their direct reports. If you're in a manufacturing facility or construction business, make sure you're visiting the site that you're talking to folks like, Hey, what's, what's frustrating? What, you know, what, what do you wish could happen? And then if they're, if they're voicing strong frustrations and those they're new to you and they're new to that person's like say second level manager, then you've got a, you've got a float, you've got a problem with the porosity of yeah. the, of the organization and you may have too much, too much middle management. I think middle management gets crapped on a lot. Defend them. Yeah, I think the middle managers are the are the translation layer between strategy and execution. Okay. So there are there are folks who are doing the actual work, producing the actual product or or service, working with customers, that sort of thing. And there is in in a complex enough organization and even fairly simple organizations taking what someone says in, at about like a three to five year plan or a goal, uh, you know, mission for the organization and translating the, that into how you should do your job differently day to day is an impossible task. And it's not because those, uh, the folks doing the actual work are, are dumb. It's that they're not involved in any of the conversations that got you to the three to five year plan or the mission or the, or the vision they've, they have experienced none of the genesis of that, of that idea. And so you're, you are going a thousand miles an hour and they're going zero. And if you tell them go a thousand miles an hour, they've got no idea how to do that. So I think middle managers can be very valuable translators of strategy to execution. And they also have a critical role of translating executional problems into necessary strategy shifts. So they're the ones that need to be detecting cultural problems, operational problems, you know, functional problems on the ground and signaling to upper management, hey, we need we need a change here. This is a problem. We need a quality function or, you know, we are way overselling and ops is not going to be able to keep up. Uh, you know, they're they're the ones that are identifying those problems and bubbling them up to to, to senior leadership. So I I don't I don't think completely flat organizations are necessarily healthy. I also don't think that, you know, eight level organizations are necessarily healthy either. And I would without deeply understanding your business and its culture, I would be very hesitant to prescribe what that actually should look like. Right. I, th I don't think there's a right answer. Yeah. I think there's a right answer for your business and it's going to be completely different from, you know, the, uh, the person's ne next door. So there's, it takes a lot of, a lot of diagnosis and a lot of good listening to, to suss that out. But I think that, you know, from flatness, 
your best diagnostic is, am I doing a bunch of stuff that I don't feel like I have any business doing? Right. And from a too deep or, you know, too uh, opaque perspective, it's, am I, am I still hearing ideas from the front line on how we can make the business better? And if you're not, that's probably indicates a problem. We talked about management. We're going to talk about incentives for a bit. So we talked about it, what it's like to maybe manage a, a CEO who's, you know, knows a lot, knows the financials. But if you move like further down into the organization, maybe you have like a, and then sales team wouldn't even be good. Or it's like the ops team. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they're not selling anything. The, the metrics change maybe. You can't necessarily incentivize them by dollars. How do you create alignment and incentives for teams, maybe even in accounting, where they're not impacting the bottom line? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the thing that I try to think about is how, how far down on the income statement someone is incentivized is inversely proportional to how high up they are in the organization. So the higher they are in the organization, the lower on the income sheet they should be incentivized. I have that bolded on my note. <laughs> okay. So using using that as a construct, I think you want to you want to incentivize someone as far down the income sheet as you can while still ensuring that they feel like they have some modicum of control over that metric that okay. they're being incentivized off of. Because I think a, a lot of time we're, you know, Lots of businesses are big on stock options, right? Stock and stock options. And usually what that what that turns into in in my experience is people cheering for things happening in the market that have nothing to do with what they're actually coming in and doing on a day-to-day basis. Now, obviously there's tremendous potential upside there, but the average line worker is so far removed from the stock price of the business that that incentive is more like giving them a lottery ticket than it is actually incentivizing them to drive meaningful value for the business. So the you know the if you go too far down the the income sheet as you're as you're incentivizing someone, they're not going to feel that this is within their locus of control. Like, well, why even try? Like, there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. Or they try really really hard and they don't move the metric. And they just end up being defeated when their bonus is lower than what they feel like they've they've earned, yep. right? So there's that aspect to it. The other is the other problem you run into is incentivizing them too high up on the on the income sheet. So lots and lots of salespeople out there are incentivized based on revenue, and a lot of those salespeople also have control over pricing, <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> So if your sales team has any control over pricing, you should probably be incentivizing them based on gross margin and not based on revenue. So it is, it is making sure that you're at the, the right level of control on the income sheet. So next to your, uh, your further question about what do you do about someone like accounting, there are a couple ways to think about this. I think the, the best one is you're not you're not going to find something typically on the income sheet that the accounting team can drive other than like outside accounting services. Okay, let's bring that down as much as possible by in-housing things. But even that might not be the best use of resources, right? right. So there's probably not something there. So 
I think as a as a business owner or as an executive, you have there are some logical leaps that you have to make in terms of how you want to how you want to incentivize people and what it's going to drive for the for the bottom line. And I think sometimes we have to we just have to say I I don't you know, I can't draw a meaningful enough connection because what you what you don't want to do is set up a set up an incentive system where someone is making a giant bonus on a huge down year for the for the business, right. which is which is probably going to happen when you start to build in those those disconnects. An- another one is actually being really, really rigorous, not about a functional area, but about each individual person. So there are some businesses that are maniacal about going person to person and saying, how much value do I think they drove in the business this year? And their discretionary bonus is actually less fluffy than normal discretionary bonuses. They're actually doing a hardcore analysis on how much value people drove. The other thing that I've seen is from like on the tech side, infrastructure tech people whose job is uptime, right? Like you're driving for four nines of of uptime. Your bonus starts at $50,000. And then for each nine that you lose off of that, you're losing a meaningful chunk of your bonus. It's actually like a countdown. So like the, uh, the idea of like giving your kids for a bad habit, instead of saying, you know, giving them, you know, money at the end of the day for fighting a bad habit, you give them, you know, 10 dimes at the beginning of the day and you take one away for each time they pick their nose or something Mm. like that. That's, it's that kind of a, that kind of a model. Yeah. So I think there is, I don't have a super clean answer for you on that because each business is different. And really like what we see in our businesses is good accounting drives meaningfully different outcomes, business to business. And some it's kind of a commodity and some it's actually like especially construction subcontractors, good accounting is gold, yep. right? Because every bit of revenue that you bring in instantly becomes a liability in construction <laughs> subcontracting. So really good you know, whip accounting is extremely valuable. So in those, you might be willing to uh, you know, overly incentivize your accounting team to, to drive value in a certain way versus others where it's just you know, a, a pretty basic function. And I would say, you know, maybe you consider if you can't draw any sort of a line between the value of that individual and the outcome of the business, maybe it's not a role that belongs in your business to begin with. Maybe it's something that you should be outsourcing so that you can focus your internal talent on what actually drives value in your business model. Interesting. Can you incentivize just the, like, if you took like an accountant, could you incentivize just based on doing the process? So. One interesting thing that came up a few years ago, I never forget it, a, a good guy in, in the industry who's a really successful real estate guy, he just said, are I asked- Are you talking about yourself? <laughs> shining right through. I mean, <laughs> I asked him, I said, how would you incentivize an asset or an asset manager? And he said, well, what do you think you should do? And I said, oh, you would pay him based on uh, NOI because they're the one driving the business plan of the asset. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a scenario and then you tell me how this works out. You have one asset that's on the corner of Maine and Maine, doesn't need any work. That thing just gushes cash every year. You put your, you could put the a junior asset manager that's never asset manager in his life and he's going to look like a hero. Then you put your best asset manager on a Maybe you just bought it, or maybe it's just a troubled asset, needs a ton of work, needs a magic wand to get this thing to be making money again. 
but it's not making any money. But you've decided that the incentives are based on the bottom line. Mm -hmm. He goes, who gets the bigger bonus? And I was like, okay. So his thing in that situation was, are you incentivizing on the process somebody went through or are you incentivizing on just the dollar amount? And so maybe I'll just put it back in your court. How do you think of incentivizing just by doing a good job in areas where no amount of good work could maybe move that needle, at least in the short term? I had to like throw you one zinger. Right. You've just been nailing every question. Right. That is, that is a zinger. And the answer for those, I mean, it's, it's critically important that that be managed well. So, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to structuring roles where the answer is just a high base. Right. Like, again, I think that the thing that is, that you're in danger of when you create an incentive plan that people feel like is out of their control is they're going to be dissatisfied with an incentive plan that under much simpler circumstances they would have been perfectly happy. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, and I, I think there's, uh, you know, some form of profit sharing can be helpful, but again, like it needs to be, it needs to be based on what someone is actually driving. So it can be, you know, when the business is successful, you want other people to be successful. So there can be some sort of like an employee pool that gets created above a certain level of performance or something like that, but probably overthinking it at this point, like, yeah just just having a really a really nice base salary for that person since it is a critical thing. I think the other the other challenge that people run into sometimes in structuring these is we assume that because they do something in the first year it has to be the same in the in the second year. Okay. Um and I don't really shy away from what have you done for me lately type bonus structures. So if you bring in if you bring in a new account, the percentage that you earn on that account is not necessarily the same in the second year as it was in the first year oh yeah and not the same in the third year as it was in this in the second year so there's you want them to benefit as the as the business benefits but if someone's job is origination you want them to get paid disproportionately to originate and not just to sit on business that they have already originated and are no longer doing no longer doing work on yeah, yeah. so for an asset manager bonusing them on the change in the annual revenue generated by that asset might be it might be an interesting way to to look at it. So if they are able to add meaningful value to the cash flow that's coming out of that asset, yeah. sharing in that in that change in that first year, and then if they can level up again the next year, sharing in that change the next year. So I you know I think tying it to value. It doesn't have to be value in perpetuity. And I think when we think about it in perpetuity, we get less creative about the types of structures we can create for people. Yep. It's just, this is just an opinionated question. When, when we talk about incentives in the rearview mirror, they always seem to make way more sense. But then you like brought up the discussion of sales, why you wouldn't just do it on revenue, if, especially if they're including price, if they're in charge of pricing, because mm -hmm. what are they going to do? They're just going to lower the price and sell more of it. Right but people do it all the time. Or my favorite is Charlie Munger's like a complete obliteration of compensation consultants. Like they're never going to, you're never going to pay them 200 grand to tell you they should be, you should be paid less. Right. From your perspective, why do, why do what seems like such an easy thing to understand in the rear view mirror 
we consistently as humans just drop the ball when we set it up to begin with? I think, oh, I think for one, businesses change over time and, yeah. and change a lot. And we just, we just forget to revisit stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, it's working. It's fine. <laughs> and I think that goes for compensation. That goes for literally everything. Like, I think the ability to look with beginner's eyes at everything in your business stem to stern on a regular basis is a superpower. I, I, that's why I think zero-based budgeting can be a really powerful tool because it forces you to re-examine you know, every expense in your business on a, on a regular basis. So, so I, think that's, I, I think that's part of it. I think the second is something that we talked about earlier, which is that human behavior is complex and incentivize, introducing incentives into a system will necessarily change behavior. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're way better at analyzing the past than we are at predicting the future. And I think we know, you know, well, like as an owner of the business, if I were incentivized to do this, I would do this, this, and this. And actually an employee is going to look at that and say, that's the goal. And that's how you're measuring me. I'm going to do an end around on all that positive behavior that you wanted to drive and do all this negative stuff that you yeah. know actually detracts value from the business. So there's a structuring compensation for the first time is actually an act in predicting human behavior in the future, which everybody is super bad at. Yeah. <laughs> and looking in the rearview mirror, analyzing human behavior is something that we're actually pretty good at. And it's like, oh, well, of course they did. They did that with that incentive plan, which is why I think it's good to revisit them all the time. You know, it, obviously you don't want to be moving the goalposts on people too much, but making sure that that, you know, if you can do it without changing the actual financial impact on someone, that's an important piece of change. So like if we're coming into a business that incentivizes a sales team on revenue and that sales team has complete pricing power over the product or the service, and we know we want to move them to gross margin, we will step through every individual in that sales team and say, this is the new, this is the new plan. It's based on gross margin. And if you do exactly what you did last year, you're going to make exactly the same money. And it has this much more upside. Yeah. The, the, next, the next time, right? Yeah. So making sure that the playing, when you're making changes, which I think if you're revisiting often enough, you're going to have to make changes and setting that reputation with your team that the playing field is going to be at least level, you know, this time over this time, right? that you will build that trust so that when things change in the future as you're optimizing for, you know, new outcomes for the business, they will, they will trust. Okay. Yeah, I, I got it. This makes sense. You know, I understand how the playing field is level. Let's, let's go get it. Is there, is there a, and you kind of said annually from your perspective, should it be looked at annually? Is it a, is it a certain time period or is it a certain size in business? Both? I think, I think annually probably makes the most sense. I mean, if you're changing comp plans more often than yeah. that, and really if you're changing comp plans annually, that's going to be whipsawing to people. Like they're going to have a really hard time with that. So, so any manager that's coming in and going and this quarter, right. We've decided yeah, that's, this. Yeah, that's a, that's a, pro <laughs> that's a problem. But I think, but again, like you, I think, I think you're, you're right to identify, like we're really good at this in, in retrospect. And so we do, we do need to take the retrospective and say, okay, what behaviors am I actually driving with this? And do, you know, do a solid deep dive once a year. Maybe don't change it once a year, maybe every two or three. Yep. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time here towards the end on just, um, we've talked about incentives. We've talked about why people should be managers, what managers do, but maybe the uh, 
the cadence at which managers should be in touch with their team. Mm. One thing I was terrible at was the consistent, maybe weekly one-on-one, or if I was in that one-on-one, even remembering what to what happened last week to talk about here. What do you tell folks, whether they're a beginning manager, a season manager, how, what's the touch points with their team, the cadence? Everybody hates a lot of meetings, especially long ones that have no purpose. Like, how do you just think about communication and just treating people like people? Mm-hmm. I think, I think finding a way to communicate with people that doesn't necessitate a meeting is, is important. Boom. Um, so that's, that's big. So whether that's teams or Slack or even email, you know, I think an interesting idea is a lot of, a lot of us as managers require like a weekly report from the people on our team. What if we flip that on its head and the manager is actually required to give an update to their team on what they thought about this week and what, what problems they ran into and the conversations they had with their manager Mm. and, you know, the challenges that they could use help with. Like, I, I think a, I think a very regular cadence of communication is, is important. And I think I wrote on um, Twitter once that I think uh, communication is compensation. I think feeling connected to your manager, feeling connected to your team, feeling connected to your business is, is, and I'm not saying it replaces monetary compensation, but what I'm saying is a complete lack of it will cause people to ask for more monetary compensation. Like mm-hmm. if I feel no connection to the people, to the uh, purpose of the of the business, I will require higher compensation in order to stay there. People who feel like they understand the direction of the business and their part in it are going to be more satisfied in the business. And people express dissatisfaction with other parts of the culture of the business by asking for more money. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know if that answers your question that's, or not, but uh, yeah. that's. Actually, I don't even remember what your question was. My Sorry, question was just more the the just the cadence at which oh, you yeah, meet yeah, with yeah. people. Yeah, and I I think it's different levels of information at, at you know in in different cadences. But I think one of the one of the hallmarks of good management that feels really hard and awkward is that you're repeating yourself all the time, and it's not because people are are dumb, and it's not because people are even less smart than you are. I work with tons of people that are way smarter than I am. It's because they have a ton of other stuff going on, not just in the business, but in their personal life also that you're trying to cut through with this. And so repeating the purpose of the business, the purpose of the team, their purpose inside of it over and over and over again and feeling like you're being, oh my gosh, I'm being so pedantic about this. You've got to get over that that awkwardness and recognize that that regular cadence of communication saying the same important things over and over and over again is critically important. Okay. The final line. You said true management is an inversion. What's that mean? So uh, it's funny. I think we, we've talked about this already earlier, which is we equate management with control. And I think, I think true management is service. Mm. And or optimizing, right? I think we too often think of management as this is my agenda and I get to use these people to do it. When actually, I think management is a pretty high calling where you're you're given responsibility for making 
eight to 12 hours of someone's day deeply meaningful for them in terms of connecting their their gifts and what they know they're good at with what the organization can use to create to create value so it it is an inversion because you you have to spend the whole day not thinking about yourself and not thinking about your personal goals you have to spend your day thinking about other people and their goals and the you know the organization's goals and how you how you fit those things together so we think about management in terms of power and control and i think true management done well is is an act of service and i think if we start presenting it as optimizer and as a as a service role you will start to recruit a very different type of person who is actually gifted at people management uh, as opposed to when people are thinking about it as power and control what comes to mind besides permit equity of course is like chick-fil-a you they are <laughs> my, my <served> <laughs> like every single person from the 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 gm who owns it to the person at the cash register it is like one continuous stream of thought set of actions yeah and it feels different it feels a, it all you feel like is that you're being served by every single person yeah. there and i'd have to imagine even within they can't just fake that towards the customer that has to be happening at the within the organization as well and i think i think we've got enough data anecdotal as it may be that people people feel more fulfilled when they are when they are serving yeah. than when they're trying to control and so I think I think that presents a, a it presents a cool opportunity to to kind of recast the management role as one of as one of service as one of giving to the people on your team instead of figuring out what you can take from them for your own gains and I think casting it in that different light is going to bring a, a different cohort to the forefront to give this you know to hand this very important role over to as opposed to kind of the the power-hungry individuals who have sought after it in the past. Mark, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This Thanks for having awesome. me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 